Lucas, if you're new with us today, we're so glad that you're here. And uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Evangel Church. And today we're going to be digging into a topic that I believe is just so foundational. Not just to what we believe, but also to the fabric of society itself. And I believe it's a topic that is, is under attack in our society. And so we're going to talk today concludes... Our series called This Is Us, and so what we've been doing is we've been going through the foundations of what we believe as a church, so we can all be on the same page and then move forward into the future. And today, I want to be so, so sensitive in my delivery, while at the same time being true to the Word of God. And, and I say this because... The Holy Spirit is taking us all on a journey. We're all at different places on the journey. We all were introduced to Jesus in different seasons of our lives. And so today is not in any way, shape, or form a time of judgment. Today, however, is a time of us being sensitive to one another, walking in this journey of faith God set before us, but part of my job is to speak truth. Part of what I have been called to do is to raise up a standard of truth from God's word so we can move together in the blessing and the principles of God. So I say all of that just to say the spirit of God is not one of condemnation. He doesn't beat us over the head. Rather, he gently leads us to truth. Amen. He gently leads us to the right way of living and the principles that he's laid out for us. But I just want to quickly pray because I've been wrestling with this sermon. I'm not going to lie. I've been wrestling with this sermon in a big way. And I want you to hear my heart today. I want you to hear my heart today of love and sensitivity. But I also want you to hear truth. And during that song, you know, God, He reigns, in a culture that seems to be so apparently strong on some issues, and where we as a church seem to be kind of being left behind or seen as redneck, backwood weirdos, I have to believe that God's truth reigns, even in the midst of a culture that says it doesn't. Amen? And so, Lord God, we just pray that you, Holy Spirit, would lead and guide us in truth today. That, God, as you gently take us on a journey of faith, that, Lord God, we would become better for it. That, Lord God, we would stand for truth, but, Lord, we would do it with such love and such sensitivity. That, Lord, we'd be led by you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, I believe what we're going to talk about today is a fundamental truth and, and that it's critical, not just for the journey of faith, for most of us, but of following Jesus. It's critical to the social fabric, to society as a whole. And it's something that was instituted, designed, and created, and it's close to the heart of God. And today we're going to be talking about marriage. We're going to be talking about marriage. I remember the week that I brought Lisa to Winnipeg. Um, Lisa and I, we dated for three months. Okay, count them, one, two, three. And then I asked her to marry me. 
and then we were engaged. Now, my parents, they had not met Lisa. Um, when, we, when we got engaged, I believe I was 20 years old. Yeah, we got married. I was 21. I think I was 20 years old. Maybe 19. No, I was 20. I was 20. And so, young, right? Lisa at the time was 18. Don't judge me. And so I had to at least bring Lisa back to Winnipeg to meet my folks before they meet her for the first time at our, on our wedding day, because that would be a little bit weird. And so we jumped on a plane, flew to Winnipeg, and, and I remember she met my family, but a lot of my friends from Winnipeg, I, I, I was part of the church and I was active in the church, but I also had a very different life, and that was with my, my party friends and my sports friends and, and all of that. And so I had a lot of unchurched, non-Christian friends that did not understand this whole marriage thing. Uh, many of them, most of them actually, came from broken homes. Most of them came from a context where their parents were divorced and separated. And, and there's just all sorts of stuff. And so when I came as a 20-year-old, telling my buddies that I had just graduated from high school, like two years previous, that I was getting married it blew their minds. They did not understand, what are you doing? Why would you get married? And then beyond that, I remember we were driving in the car, and it was just me and, and, and another buddy of mine that, that was from Winnipeg. And when he, when he found out, he was like, you're going you're gonna to marry her before you live with her? Like, that, that blew his mind. Because our society and our culture has a view of relationship and love that is broken. It's broken. And it blew their minds. They did not understand. They, couldn't, they didn't even have a point of reference for this idea that I was getting married. And it kind of shaped a lot of what I was thinking about as we went into our marriage. But I believe this experience that we had is just a microcosm of the greater views of society and culture that we are called to live out our faith in. God's design for marriage is and has been under attack in our world because the enemy, Satan, he knows that if you can destroy the family, you cannot just wreck that family and that generation. You can wreck and destroy the generations to come. He knows if you can undermine God's institution of marriage, you can undermine generations in brokenness. I want to be so sensitive. I want to be so sensitive. Hear my heart. I'm going to come at you and preach, okay? But hear my heart. So what do we know about marriage from a biblical view? Well, 50 years ago, uh, what I'm about to say, and you're going to pull out your pencils and your notepads, and we're going to take notes if you're ready for that. We take notes in this church because it's an important expression of how we kind of process stuff. And so before you do that, though, 50 years ago, this would not have been a major point in a sermon on marriage, okay? But today, things have changed. And society has caused this to be much more of a prominent point when it comes to 
God's design and God's institution in marriage. And the first thing is this. If you have your notepads, write this down. God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. If you turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 to 28, we read the account of this creation story. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. When we go back to original intentions, as God as creator of the universe, as God as creator of all creation, we see the context where he created man and woman and he blessed them and he told them be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. Bring it to the New Testament, Jesus Jesus says in response to the Pharisees, and we're going to dig a little bit more into this account, but in Matthew 19, verse 4, Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, we live in a society where this view is not a popular one. In fact, this view is going to remain quite unpopular in the years to come. This is the trajectory that we're on. This is the society and the culture that we live in. This is our reality. But the question still remains, what is God's plan for marriage? Because if you're following Jesus and you believe God is creator then you have to believe that in his creation, he had systems, he had ways, he had designs for his creation. And when we look at scripture, we have to ask the question, what is God's plan for marriage? Well, this is it. It was designed and instituted by our creator. It was designed for intimacy, procreation, and physiologically in the way that he designed and created us. The original intentions of marriage and creation have not changed. They have not changed. This is not, I want you to hear this, this is not a bigoted or hate-filled view. There is no hate in my heart. There is no agenda in my heart apart from the heart to know the heart of God and the intention of God. That's the journey that we're on. If we're going to give our lives to Jesus, the journey that we are on is what is truth. Unfortunately, in a culture where we depend on feeling and expression and all the other things, truth becomes a moving target and it'll go anywhere we want it to go. But we don't have that luxury because we believe in a creator God. And if we believe in a creator God, we have to believe that he designed and implemented and laid out foundations of truth of how to live this life. Now, the state may differ. The government may differ, and that's okay. I'm not interested in in, in necessarily what the state mandates, I believe. Uh, There's a moment in time that the believer in Jesus has to draw a line in the sand and has to stand for truth. 
while showing love. But on the subject of hate, on the subject of hate, I do think that to some degree society has a point, okay? And I want to be careful here. But I do believe society has a point, and here's what I mean by that. Too often the church has held an expectation on a world that is apart from Christ to look like, sound like, and behave like Christ's followers. And sometimes we don't even think about the way that we act around non-Christian, non-believing people. But this be, tends to be the way that we interact. At least it has in the past. Yet deep down we know that apart from the transformative power of Jesus in a life, we cannot and will not live that way. We as a church cannot look at a world apart from Jesus and expect them to look like, believe like, act like Christ followers. Because it takes an experience. It takes a moment when Jesus comes into a heart and transforms a life that he then resets the trajectory of a life. He then gives grace to be able to live out the way God has created and designed us to live out. But I think sometimes the church, in its zealousness for truth, has forgotten that only Jesus can change a life. I believe the church, more than ever, needs to be a place where people, no matter where they're coming from, no matter what their context, no matter what their belief systems, can come into a community of faith like this and feel loved and feel safe so they can explore faith in Jesus. Because I will not I will not judge those apart from Jesus. We're not called to do that. We're not called to do that. We're called to live with a standard of truth and to love abundantly. Jesus changes a life. My expectations for them to live differently, they don't exist because for them, the impetus, the person of Jesus, is yet to transform them. That's why we're called to love a broken world. That's why we can live in the world, but not of it. That's why we as a church can say that we aspire to be a safe place for everyone to encounter, to explore faith in Jesus, encounter his love, and then, only then, only then, begin to look more and more like him each day. But God's design for marriage, the way God created and intended marriage relationship on this planet is between a man and a woman. There's no other alternatives given in biblical teaching in either the Old or the New Testament. Number two, if you're taking notes, write this down. God designed marriage as the sacred place for sexual expression and by extension procreation. God designed marriage as the sacred place for sexual expression and by extension, procreation. Young person, single person, write this down. Write this down. If you think God is a prude 
and wants you to have nothing to do with sex, then you haven't read your Bible. You haven't read your Bible. Some of you have grown up with a view of sex that has led you to believe that it's just about procreation and that's it. Kind of this Victorian era idea. Not legit, not true, not God's design. It's not just about procreation, but it's also about being a sacred place. Marriage is a sacred place. It's a safe place for sexual expression and intimacy and love. It's not just about procreation. It's not just the mechanics that lead to babies. Nothing could be further from the truth. Just read the book called Song of Solomon, or in your Bible it might be called Song of Songs. Just do a study of some of the words that the Hebrew and Greek use when defining love in different contexts. One of them is eros, which in our English language is where we get the word erotic. God is so, so for sexual expression and exploration that he created a sacred and intimate place of safety in the marriage relationship for it. The year after I moved to Winnipeg, I'll never forget it. I was going into grade eight. And so we moved to Winnipeg and I, uh, I started grade eight. And that was the year that Winnipeg, I don't know if you, you guys remember, I think it was back in 94, 95, had the big flood. So Winnipeg's a beautiful, well, okay, that's a stretch. <laughs> Winnipeg has some redeeming qualities in that it has the Assiniboine River and the Red River, and they both meet. Actually, it's, it's, it's a place in Winnipeg called the Forks, and it's where the Assiniboine River and the Red River, they meet. And my first year, grade eight, the snow was like unprecedented. The melt was crazy, and so these rivers began to rise. And some of you may remember, they crested, and they went over the bank. And when they went over the bank, what happened? We had a lake. We had a moving lake. We had destruction. We had a lot of people out sandbagging. We had the military deployed. We had a state of emergency. But I want you to think about the power and the beauty and the necessity of the river bank, of the river bank. It's the bank that maintains the order and flow of a river. And once the bank is destroyed, once the river leaves the bank, it's destruction, it's mayhem, it's chaos. Listen, the same is true about the principles and design of our creator when we when we approach sexuality and sexual expression, the same is true. When we approach sexuality within the context of the riverbank, in the way that God designed it, the way that God meant it, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. But when sexuality and sexual expression leaves the riverbank, it's destructive. It's destructive. It leads to brokenness and heartache. 
Young person, this is why your parents are so obsessed with you waiting until marriage to unleash your sexual expressions. Because they either know by experience that that river, when it leaves the bank, only leads to brokenness and heartache, or they have proven its value by playing within the river banks and not regretting that decision ever. If kept for the place of marriage and commitment to your partner, it's life-giving and it's beautiful. I want you just to, I want to read just a few things. The Journal of Family of Psychology published a study that was done. It's called Relate, and it was done in 2010. And, and here's the summary statement that came from their study. The longer a couple waited to become sexually involved, the better that sexual quality, relationship communication, relationship satisfaction, and perceived relationship stability was in that marriage. So why is this? Well, it would stand to reason that if God created sex, and if he created it and designed it for marriage, that there'd be some science that would kind of prove or give us an idea that God knows what he's doing. And there is. And, and this, is, this is, can be discovered in part by some of the hormones and the stuff that goes on in our brain. I'm just going to read this. This is a quote from, uh, it's called Hooked, New Science on How Casual Sex is Affecting Our Children. And here's what they say. Any kind of sexual activity that takes place releases chemicals in our brains. For women, it is primarily the hormone ox, ox, oxytocin. There we go. And for men, it's vasopressin. Oxytocin allows a woman to bond to the most significant people in her life. Um, just, just so you know, ladies, when you had a baby, when you had a baby, you had a major flush, a major wash over your prefrontal cortex of the hormone oxytocin. That's what happened. You remember that moment when that baby came out and you didn't even, you, you, it took you by surprise how much you could love someone you've never met? This is that connecting of oxytocin washing over your prefrontal cortex. Oxytocin allows women to bond to the most significant people in her life. It eases stress, creating feelings of calm and closeness, which leads to increased trust. It also causes her to want to nurture and protect the one she's bonded to. Vasopressin is very similar to oxytocin, except that it's primarily released in the, men, the brains of men. This hormone causes a man to bond to a woman during intimate contact. Some call it the commitment hormone or the monogamy molecule. This hormone generates a desire for commitment and rouses loyalty. It inspires a protective sense over one's mate and can create a jealous tendency. And there's a third set of hormones called endorphins released during sexual activities. And they affect both genders. Endorphins are what we call happy hormones. They are highly addictive and cause us to want to experience that rush again and again and again. What makes things even more interesting is that these hormones are values neutral. Whether it's one-time encounter or a lifelong commitment, we bond the same way. We bond the same way. So whether you're having a one-night stand or this is your honeymoon, what's going on in your brain is exactly the same. You're bonding chemically exactly the same. 
It stands the reason that God knows what he's talking about when he gives us the pathway and the guide for sexual expression and procreation. And he says, do it in the context of marriage. Do it in the context of a man and a woman in a lifelong committed relationship. Because what's going on chemically in your brain is you're bonding to one another. So why do we teach and preach that sex was meant for marriage? Not because we're old traditionalists with a heart to repress the sexuality of the people. No, it's because we truly believe that the greatest expressions of sexuality are found in the safety, security, and intimacy of a committed, lifelong, monogamous marriage relationship between a man and a woman. God designed marriage as a sacred place for sexual expression. And then by extension, procreation. The reality, the, the, the result of sexual intimacy for most, for most, and I want to be sensitive here, often leads to procreation, to the creation of life. Now, now in case you are wondering what our belief is as a church when it comes to um, life, I may as well just get all the hot topic things out of the way here. We believe in the moment of conception, God is weaving that baby together in their mother's womb and that he or she has intrinsic value and should be protected and advocated for. That's what we believe. But we often say that the greatest gift you can give your children is a healthy marriage. The greatest gift you can give your children is a healthy marriage. God's design for marriage and family was for intimacy, safety, and security for both one another and the lives that you bring into this world. We don't have to argue about the statistics and the effects of broken home on our culture today. I mean, if you want to look at the science around that and the statistics around that, be my guest. But I think it's a non-starter if you're going to try to argue. Again, this is why the enemy of God and humanity has so attacked the home. Because he knows it will affect generations to come. Now, I alluded to it before, but the third broad strokes thing we believe about marriage is this. And if you're taking notes, write it down. God designed marriage to be monogamous and for life. Monogamous and for life. The, the definition of monogamous by today's standard is to be in a marriage or sexual relationship with one person at a time. So to say that we believe that marriage just simply is to be monogamous is only half true. Because we believe that ideally we're called to a lifelong monogamous relationship. Again, as we read before in Matthew 19, the Pharisees, they come and they're, they're trying to test Jesus in asking him questions about marriage and divorce. And, and here's the encounter in Matthew 19, starting verse 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. And Pharisees, for those that are new to this, Pharisees are, were some of the leading teachers, the leading leaders within the, the synagogues, the churches of that day in Jesus' time. And Pharisees came up to him, up to Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
Now, keep in mind that there were divisions even at that time amongst the religious leaders. There was, there was one rabbinical school of the time that taught that, that only in the case of pornonia, which is adultery, unfaithfulness, that you could divorce your wife. And, and another school, they taught that a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. For any reason at all. And Jesus, in his wisdom, he doesn't fall for the trap but rather he presents an argument why people should remain married. Instead of getting into all of that, he paints a picture of the ideal. He paints a picture of God's intention. And so he goes on. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife? And the two shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Here's what the uh, Nelson Study Bible has to say. And I, I just love how they broke this down. It's into three parts. Here's what they said about this, this response of Jesus. Number one, God made one male and one female. If God had intended more than one wife for Adam... He would have created more. The same would be true of husbands for Eve. He who made them is literally the one who created or the creator. The implication is that the creator is Lord and is the one who determines what is ideal in marriage. Jesus says, do you not know it's monogamous? One man, one woman. That's it. Sacred sacred, protected, secure, safe, intimate, deep. One man, one woman. Number two, Nelson Study Bible goes on to say, God ordained marriage as the strongest bond in all human relationships. A man leaves his parents and is joined to his wife. The language is very strong here. Uh, the word leave means to abandon in the original language, to abandon your father and mother. And join is to be glued to, inseparable. Uh, the, the, the language speaks of being glued together, that if there is separation, there is tearing, there is brokenness, there is, you're not complete, you're not the same. The most permanent relationship in society is not between parent and child, but between husband and wife. Not between child, parent and child, but between husband and wife. Uh, on a side note, parents and in-laws, if you want to put your two cents into the private matter of your son or daughter's marriage... Wait until you've been asked. Otherwise, stay out of it. Because when they, on the day they said, I do, they became their own autonomous family. Husbands and wives, if you can't make decisions for your immediate family because you might garner the disapproval of, of a parent or an in-law... You need to have a crucial conversation and cut the cord because that's toxic. That's toxic. 
That is not God's intention for your marriage. And you need to be released in that. You hear me? You need to be released in that. And number three, the two became one flesh. The basic element in marriage is a contract or covenant. Part of that covenant is is physical intimacy. Then the Pharisees, still trying to trap Jesus, they asked him a follow-up question. In Matthew 19, 7, they say this. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. This is a hard truth from Jesus. This is a hard truth from Jesus. Now, again, I want to be sensitive. And I understand that we all are on this journey of faith, and we've all come in different seasons of our lives. But the heart of God is always... Always, can you say the word always? Always for reconciliation, for the mending of broken relationships. The heart of God is always for reconciliation and the coming together of broken things. Even in the event of adultery, God's heart would be for reconciliation. God's ideal for marriage is monogamous and lifelong. That is his ideal. However, because of the hardness and the brokenness of humanity, there was given a reason for divorce, and that was the marital unfaithfulness of a spouse. And we recognize that to be trapped in a marriage with someone who is unfaithful is not um, the most ideal way to live. Now, I want to dive into something. I want to switch gears just a little bit. And I want to go on public record to say this. Although I believe this is to be true about marriage, I also believe, I believe in marital separation. I believe in marital separation. Okay? Hear me out. We live in a society right now where many prominent people have given guidance and they have given um, counsel to people that find themselves in situations of abuse that you have to stay in that marriage and just dog it out. I don't believe that for a second. I don't believe that for a second. If you find yourself in a marriage where you or your kids are being physically or sexually abused, you need to get out of that house. You need to call the police, and I would be the first to help you do it. I would be the first to help you do it. No one should have to be in an environment where there is physical or sexual abuse and go, well, God, God's ideal is that I stay in this. No, that is not as ideal for you. I believe that there are seasons and times where marital separation, where you literally, with proximity, remove yourself from the situation, needs to happen. 
I believe that with all my heart. Love isn't love if it allows broken people to remain in their brokenness. If you are in a relationship with cycles of substance abuse that leave you and your kids in moments where you feel you are not safe, then maybe you need to get out of that house or your spouse does. If you are in a marriage of emotional abuse, you may need to bring a necessary ending to that season by standing up for yourself. What is emotional abuse? The, de the definition of emotional abuse is this. Emotional abuse is a pattern of behavior that attacks an individual's emotional development, sense of self-worth, dignity, and identity. In their book, Boundaries, Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend, they write this. We change our behavior when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing. Consequences give us the pain that motivates us to change. Your decision to not put up with that garbage in your marriage and your family may be the catalyst, the consequence, the pain that causes your loved one to change their behavior. If you find yourself in a season or a relationship or a marriage where you are unsafe in abuse, cycles of abuse, whether physical, emotional, or sexual, or you find yourself living with someone that is so severely trapped in addiction that it's leaving you and your family unsafe. You need to get out, or they do. And perhaps a season of marital separation, I'm not talking about divorce, perhaps a season of marital separation is the catalyst and the thing, the pain, the consequence that can bring you to reconciliation and to life. It always, doesn't always work out that way. My last church, I was actually, I called up uh, my last pastor, um, and there was a situation where in council he found out that there's a, a woman in, in the church that was being abused that, in her home, and it was, it, was, it was primarily emotional abuse. And so one day while he was at work, uh, my pastor literally went with her, went into that home, got her stuff, everything she needed, got her out, found her a place, and was able to separate her proximity-wise from that abuser. Well, what happened is that person, that, that man, that husband, was rip-roaring mad, of course, came to Wes, and they had it out. But in the midst of his anger, he came to realize that he was wrong. And then he started going to counseling. He started dealing with his baggage. He started dealing with his stuff. Now today, Lisa and I were there. We led worship the other day. That couple's back together. They're healthy. And he's even coming to church. But it took consequences for him to realize that he was in the wrong. God does not ever, his ideal and his intention for you is not to sit in a marriage of abuse. 
But even when you step out and do something about it, his heart would still be for reconciliation. As much as it depends upon you, as much as it depends upon you, because you can't control the behavior of another person. You can't control their decisions or what they're going to do. But as much as it depends upon you, God's heart is for reconciliation always. Always. Amen? I just wanted to, I wanted to get that out there because church culture for too long, we talk about loving our neighbors and turning our other cheek and all of that. That does not, that does not talk about abuse in there. That, that is not the context for that. And for too long, abusers have been able to hide in churches. And I believe with all my heart, that season's done. That season's done. And if you, are, if you find yourself in that circumstance, you need to know that you have a family here that loves you dearly and will stand with you and stand for you. We'll stand with you and we'll stand for you. So in conclusion, marriage, it was designed by God between a man and a woman. Between a man and a woman. God designed it to be a sacred place for sexual expression and by extension procreation. And God designed it to be monogamous. God designed marriage to be exclusive. Exclusive. Just you and your wife. Just you and your husband. That is God's ideal. And he designed it to be for a lifetime. He designed it to be for a lifetime. And as I said, I wanted to be sensitive today. And as the worship team comes, I wanted to be sensitive today because we all find ourselves in different moments. And like I said, the Spirit of God is not one that comes and beats you over the head with truth. That is not his M.O., However, the Spirit of God does come and call us to the ideal. He calls us to a standard of truth. He calls us to walk in principles of truth because the alternative, the alternative is sin and brokenness. Sin and brokenness lead us to death. God, his presence and his truth leads us to life. This is the journey of faith. This is what it means to stand for truth. And in a culture that is so opposed to what we believe, I say, love them extravagantly, even when they persecute you, even when they revile and are against you. Love them extravagantly. God bless you.